0: The God of the Wayward Child. Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author, pastor, teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. Luke chapter 15, verse 3 through 32 records Jesus' response to these grumbling critics by telling the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Today, Pastor Charles will show us that the Father allowed his son to take advantage of him, but the Father eagerly awaited his son's return, and the Father freely restored his son with joy. Today's message, the God of the wayward child, And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles, Jr.
1: If you take your Bible, turn with me to Luke 15. We've been studying Luke 15 under the title and theme, Lost People Matter to God. Luke 15 records three parables. I want to begin a study of this parable, which will take me three weeks in total. It's a three-dimensional story. There is here an emphasis on a lovesick father, a prodigal son, and an elder brother. God willing, the next two weeks, I wanna look at the lessons we learned from the prodigal son and the elder brother, but today I wanna focus on what we learned from the lovesick father. Let me read the story in its entirety. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he said to his father, look, look. He was lost and is found. Amen. The God of the wayward child. Luke 15 verses 1 and 2 establish the setting of the text. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and... The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The notorious, outcast, irreligious, and sinful gathered to hear Jesus teach. Representatives of the religious establishment are also there. They, too, want to hear Jesus teach to catch him saying something they can use against him. Better yet, They catch him doing something to discredit him. Jesus shared food, friendship, and fellowship with the cast of ragamuffins around him. Thinking erroneously that they have a monopoly on God, the religious leaders conclude that Jesus could not be a man of God, much less the Son of God because God would not receive sinners and eat with them, so they thought. Luke 15, verses 3 through 32, records Jesus' response to the grumbling religious leaders. He responds with three parables. Verses 4 through 7 is the parable of the missing sheep or the lost sheep. Verses 8 through 10 is the parable of the lost coin. Verses 11 through 32 is the parable of the lost son. These three parables make one point. Lost people matter to God. In that sense, these parables stand together. To not consider them in their entirety is like getting to the movie late or Leaving early, you missed something because you didn't see the whole thing. The three parables make one point. In fact, they share a common outline. In each parable, something is lost. In each parable, it is found. And in each parable, this is the punchline of Luke 15, a party is thrown to celebrate that what was lost is now found. Really, that's the emphasis of the chapter. The religious leaders ask Jesus, if Jesus really knows God, why is he partying with sinful people? Jesus asked in reply, If you really know God, why haven't you joined the party? Lost people matter to God. These three parables stand together, but they They must not be so joined at the hip that they cannot stand alone. They make beautiful music together, but they also sing sweetly as soloists. Though sharing a common theme, there are nuances in each of the parables that make them unique. In each parable, there is a different protagonist or main character. In the first, it is a shepherd. In the second, it is a woman. In the third, it is a father. In each parable, something different is lost. The first, it is a sheep, and the second, it is a piece of silver, and the third, it is a son. In each parable, the lost thing has a different proportional value. The sheep is one of 100, the coin is one of 10, the son is one of two. In each of these parables, the lost thing gets lost in a different place. The sheep gets lost in the wilderness. The coin gets lost, wait for it, in the house. The son gets lost in the big city. In each of these stories, the lost thing has a different nature. The shepherd is a Dumb and defenseless animal. The coin is an inanimate object, but the boy is a free moral agent who can choose between right and wrong. In each parable, the lost thing gets lost for a different reason. The sheep gets lost because of its carelessness. The coin gets lost because of the negligence of another the boy is lost by miscalculation he miscalculated how fast living loose women and fair weather friends can quickly deplete a small inheritance and in each parable the protagonist responds to the lost thing a different way the shepherd responds with determination looking until he finds the sheep. The woman responds with thoroughness, cleaning the house until she finds the coin, but the father responds with patience, waiting for his son to come home. You see, the parables are are united and unique at the same time. They, They all reach the same address, they just take different streets to get there. This is an important preface to the third parable, because when we get to the parable of the prodigal son, we often forget its symmetry with the first two parables, because this third parable is longer and more dramatic and, frankly, better than the first two. We forget that simply here, Jesus is making the point he has been making in this chapter, lost people matter to God. Jesus now makes that point for the third time in this chapter by describing what happens when a lovesick father responds to a wayward son who refused to do right. And for the record, this story is about the father. Robert Farrar Caplan calls this one of the so-called misnamed parables— we call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it is not about the son. Verse 11 tells us there was a man who had two sons. The man, the father, is the star of the story, not the prodigal son. The prodigal son is significant only to the degree that he demonstrates the love of the father, and for that reason, he is no more important than the elder brother. The father is the star of the story, not the prodigal son. And in fact, if I was giving awards for the best actor in a supporting role, it would not go to the prodigal son or the elder brother. It would go to the fattened calf. You giggle, but read the story again. That's the point of tension. The party did not happen when the boy came home. The party happened when they killed the fattened calf. And the elder brother is not mad because the boy came home. He probably expected it. He's mad because he never got a young goat to party with, with his brothers. But when his brother came home, after wasting the daddy's money on prostitutes, I don't know how he knew that, but... He was mad that when the boy came home, the father killed for him the fattened calf. The the fattened calf is the Christ figure of the parable. But the star of the story is the father. The, um, The prodigal son speaks to the tax collectors and sinners in the crowd. The elder brother speaks to the scribes and Pharisees in the crowd, but the father is the one who's doing the talking. And the father in this story is meant to give us a sense of the heartbeat of God toward the loss. Consider with me three features of the father's love for his wayward child. First of all, the father allowed his son to take advantage of him. The father allowed the son to take advantage of him. Verse 11 says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is an incredible request. The boy basically says to his father, I can't live here under your rules anymore. I'm grown, it's time for me to be on my own. I want to go out in the world and be a man. Oh, but yeah, I need you to finance that for me." <laughs> He's not just asking his father to finance his independence, as crazy as that alone is. He is specifically asking for the share of property that is coming to me, In the custom and culture of the day. Upon the father's death, this boy would get one third of the father's estate. He is not just asking for money, he is asking for the money from the will, from his inheritance. He is saying to his father, in essence, Daddy, as far as I'm concerned, you can drop dead right now. I'm tired of waiting on you to die. Just execute your will and Give me my money so I can get on with my life. If there's anything more remarkable in this story, then the boy's request is the father's response. If this was my daddy's house, this would be a short story in the truest sense of the word. <laughs> the boy made this ridiculous request, and then the next line would read, and the old man slapped the boy in his mouth and sent him to his room, the end. But the text says here in the end of verse 12 that the father divided his property between them. He executed his will. I want you to get this. For all intents and purposes, he becomes legally dead to his son. and gives him his inheritance. Verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He packed up all his stuff, all his jeans and Nikes and Xbox games and He got all his stuff because he didn't intend to ever come back, and he took a journey to the far country where he wasted this money in reckless living. The issue is not the reckless living. I think the point of that 13th verse is where he went, the far country. You won't find that in a Bible atlas or a map of the ancient Near East. The issue is not geography. The issue is that the far country was where the daddy was not. He took his daddy's money and got as far away from his daddy's house as he could. Why did he do it? We We know why the boy did it. He was young and stupid. But why did the Father do it? Why did the Father grant the request? I submit to you today, church, that love made the Father grant this ridiculous request. Some of you think to yourself, that's not love. And I get what you're saying. There are parents who give their children anything they ask, everything they want in the name of love, but overindulgence of children is not love. To overindulge children is irresponsible parenting. To give the child everything a child requests does not produce a responsible adult. It produces an adult adolescent that thinks the world owes them something. But that's not what's going on here. It was real, true love that made the father grant the request. The father wanted something with the boy that the boy did not want with the father, a relationship based on love. And in order for there to be a relationship based on love, the other party has to be free to reject your love. Do you feel the heartbeat of God? God loves you today, friend, and he wants to have a relationship with you based on love. But in order to have such a relationship, God has to graciously condescend to sinners and put himself in a vulnerable position of being taken advantage of. You see, some people serve God because of rules. They picture God as an angry tyrant with his cosmic belt in his hand waiting for the guilty sinner to come home. And that's why some people refuse to go to church. They're like the rebellious teenager. They've just concluded, if I'm going to get a whipping anyway, I might as well stay out as late as I can. (laughs) But that's not who God is, and that's not what God is about. Some live for God because of rewards. They picture God as a cosmic Santa Claus surrounded by by presents to give to those who are good enough to receive them. And they try to be good before God so that they don't get coal in their stockings. But that's not who God is, and that's not what God is about. God does not want you to live for him because of rules or rewards. He wants you to live for him because of relationship. And have a relationship based on love. God has to put himself in a position where he allows himself to be taken advantage of. This is what happens at the incarnation of Jesus Christ when God takes on flesh to become one of us, to take our place at the cross, to save us by his love. A king traveling along the ways is smitten by the beauty of a young maiden in the field. It is love at first sight. He wants to marry her, but because of his high position and her lowly estate, this is a tricky negotiation. He could send his soldiers and make her come and marry him, but he does not because you cannot compel true love. He could send his servants to shower her with gifts, but he does not because you cannot buy true love. So instead, he takes off his royal garments, puts on the clothes of a peasant, returns to that field, and begins working next to the peasant girl and strikes up a conversation, a relationship developed, love, nurtures. And she gets to the place where she so loves him that she wants to spend the rest of her life with him because of who he is, not what he has. And it is only then that he is free to reveal his identity to her. This is what happened when God sent his son into the world. God took off his glorious robes of majesty and put on the rags of human flesh. He sweated in our heat and shivered in our cold. He became one of us. In fact, he died at the cross. Omnipotence became pierceable. The living one was crucified to declare to guilty sinners that I love you and I want to bring you back home. <laughs> the father allowed the son to take advantage of him. Number two, the father eagerly waited for the son to come home. I don't want to emphasize what, what all the boy was doing in the far country. I want to emphasize for a moment what the father was doing while the boy was doing whatever the boy was doing. He was waiting for him to come back home. And friend, I want you to know, whoever you are, whatever you've done, no matter how far you've gone away, God is waiting on you to come home. There is good news and bad news there. Let me give you the good news first. The good news is God is waiting for you to come home. The boy goes off into the far country, wastes his inheritance on reckless living, runs out of money, and as you can imagine, when he runs out of money, he runs out of friends. And at the same time, a recession hit. In the agricultural language of the text, a famine hit the land, and there was no job. One local man in the country offered him a job. It's the only job he could get feeding swine. Remember, this is a Jewish story. The lowest this boy could go is to take a job feeding unclean pigs that the law said don't touch. But the text says not only does he accept a job feeding pigs, but he is at the stage being so hungry that he... Fights, wants to fight the pigs for their slop. But verse 17 says he came to himself. And when he came to himself, he decided to go home. Let, let me skip ahead. He goes home negotiating a way back into the house. I can't come back in and get my old room, but if I can get a job, at least I can get in the kitchen. But little did he know when he got there, his daddy had been waiting on him. His dad had been watching for him. His dad kept the door open. His dad made sure there was always a plate for him at the table. The dad made sure that his bedroom was still ready. Do you get what I'm trying to say, church? I'm trying to say it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. God still loves you. God still cares about you. God wants to welcome you back. God wants to give you another chance. God wants to extend to you his amazing grace. He's waiting on you to come home. A teenager... Had Gone through a rebellious season, it had gotten worse and ended with a climatic argument with his parents. He said things Sal should never say to his parents, no matter how old they think they are. He stormed out, but soon became sorrowful about his ways and words and wanted to come home, but thought that he had crossed a line that could not be retrieved. So he wrote a letter and left a note while his parents was at work, apologizing, begging for their forgiveness, asking to come back home, but admitting that he couldn't take rejection personally is why he wrote the note. He said, after school tomorrow, I'm going to pass by, and if all is forgiven, I want a sign. Would you go in my room and get those blue sheets off my bed and hang them on the line in front of the house, and if I see the blue sheets... I'll know that I'm welcome to come home. If I don't, I'll keep going and won't bother you anymore. When he rolled by the next day, he was shocked by what he saw because little did he know after getting his note, his parents had been up in a labor of love all night and had dyed all the sheets in the house blue and decorated the front of the house with the blue sheets to emphatically say to their son, That in spite of what you've done, we love you, we forgive you, and we want you to come back home. Listen to me, friend. God did not hang any sheets on the line, but he did hang his son on the cross. To say it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, I love you, and I want to give you another chance. God is waiting on you to come home. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. God is waiting on you. To come home. You with me? When the, when the sheep has lost, the shepherd neglects the 99 and goes looking for the one until he finds it. When the coin is lost, the woman turns her house upside down, searching thoroughly until she finds it. But when the daddy loses his son, he sits and waits. Because of the nature of the lost thing, The sheep is a dumb animal. The coin is an inanimate object but the boy is a free moral agent because he's a free moral agent who must choose for himself between right and wrong. The daddy doesn't chase him into the far country. The dad doesn't show up and embarrass him in a nightclub and drag him home and lock him in his room. The daddy does not even put His face on the side of a milk carton. Hear these next two sentences very carefully, church. He chose to leave. And he must choose to come back home. God is waiting on you. But you must choose to come back home. After a good business deal, the man went to the bank to cash this sizable check from a multimillionaire, only to be surprised by the teller who told him he, she could not cash that check. He said, do you see the name, do you know who wrote this check? She says, I do. Do you know how much money he's worth? She says, I do. Do you know how much money he has in this bank? She says, I do. What do you mean? You can't cash the check. She says, sir, I can't cash it because you haven't endorsed it. Hear me, friend. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to pay for all of your sins, (laughs) past, present, and future. But you must endorse the check by faith. You must decide to come back home to God. You must run to the cross and throw yourself on the mercy of God And trust the blood and righteousness of Christ for salvation. I got good news for you. It don't matter how far in the far country you are today. If you run to the cross, you'll find God is waiting on you. Verse 17 says it this way. The boy came to himself. I like that language. That's the explanation for all that boy's activities. He wasn't at himself. He was crazy. He had lost his mind. He had gone temporarily insane. Do you hear Jesus saying, friend, if you try to live without God, you must be out your mind. The God that woke you up this morning, the God that puts breath in your lungs and strength in your body, it's God that keeps a roof over you. You must be crazy to try to live without God. But he woke up and said, I don't have to be what I've been because my daddy is who he is. And because God is who God is, you don't have to be what you've been. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed and the new has come. Finally, the father freely restored his son with joy. The boy comes home. Practicing a speech to negotiate himself back in the house. Father, I have sinned before heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. Let me tell you something there. Life knows how to catch up with you. (laughs) In verse 12, the boy, give me what's coming to me now in verse 19, he says, just treat me like a servant. <laughs> but when you get to verses, verse 20, the Bible says the father saw him and ran to him. In the old ancient Near East, aged men, wealthy men, men of status wouldn't be caught running. That's why it's remarkable in Luke 19 that Zacchaeus ran and climbed the tree to see Jesus. Noblemen never would run. But here we find this rich man running to his way with child. Jesus is giving us again the heartbeat of God. God would rather lose his dignity than lose his children. <laughs> he hugs him and kisses him and says, it doesn't matter what you did. I'm just glad you're home now. Aren't you glad God don't treat us the way people do? Aren't you glad God don't treat us the way church people do? Aren't you glad God doesn't hold over us every mistake? We are restored not because what we do for God. We are restored because what God does for us by amazing grace. He restored them freely and then joyfully. I'm at verses 22 through 24. He says to the servants, Go get the best robe and put him on him, Quick, go get the best robe. Well, you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, clean them up before I let them come in the house. Mm -mm. Y'all go in the house and get a robe. Not just any robe, the best robe. And to get the best robe, they would have to go into the daddy's closet. He's saying, go get my robe and put it on him. This is how we get to heaven. Though we dirty and filthy, we've been covered by the righteousness of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Put a ring on his finger, signifying his authority in the house. Go put some sandals on his feet. Servants go barefoot. Sons wear shoes. And I know y'all think I'm crazy because all this time I've been overfeeding one calf. Today is D-Day for that fat calf. Go kill the fatty calf so that we can throw a party to celebrate that my son was lost and now he's found, he's dead, and now he's alive. And here we are again at the punchline of Luke 15, the celebration of the recovery of the lost. The religious leaders ask, if Jesus knows God, why is he partying with sinners? Jesus asked, if you know God, why haven't you joined the party? I stood here today to say to the Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church, join the party. None of us are in the house because we so good or holy or righteous or just or upright. All of us who made it back into the Father's house rolled in on amazing grace. How dare you be judgmental? How dare you be critical? How dare you look down at others who have fallen? When you look back over your life and see what grace has done for you, you ought to join the party. I got to quit. The third parable is the mother of all parties. When the sheep is found, verse 6 the shepherd says to his friends in the neighborhood, rejoice with me because I found the sheep that was lost. When the coin is found, the girl says to her girlfriends in the neighborhood, rejoice with me because I found my coin, which I lost. But in verse 24, the father says to the servants, and in verse 32, he says to the elder brother, let's celebrate. It's fitting to celebrate because my boy, watch me now, was lost, but now he's found. But not just that, he was dead, and now he's alive. That's the miracle of salvation. Without Christ, we're not just lost. We're dead, dead in trespasses and sin. Dead people can't help themselves. Dead people can't turn over a new leaf. Dead people can't change their ways. Dead people can't start all over again. Dead people can't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Dead people don't need religion. They need resurrection. And that's the miracle of amazing grace. We ought to celebrate because we were dead, but by the blood of Jesus, we have been born again. They celebrated because what was dead was alive. But they also celebrated because what was alive died. The party didn't start when the boy came home. The party started when they killed the fatty calf. And the fatty calf is the Christ figure of the parable. Without the fatty calf, there wouldn't be a party. And if it wasn't for the living one who died on our behalf, on a hill called Calvary one Friday, you and I wouldn't have a reason to celebrate. But thanks be to God, he lived for us, he died for us, and he rose again for us. Yeah. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchased of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. But has anybody else got a similar story? This is my song. Anybody here got a song? Praising my Savior. You ought to join the party, church. God be blessed.
0: Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles, Jr., If you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight and God bless.